So whenever I hear people that are so adamantly and just vitriolically against this industry, I'm really encouraged. Welcome to a Bit Cryptic Podcast, where we interview top crypto experts to take you down the rabbit hole into the world of cryptocurrency. Now, it's time to get a bit cryptic. Today, we are here with Sam Abbasi on the show. Sam is co-founder and partner at Bushido Labs, a blockchain development and consultancy group. He's also created something called Kim Jong Crypto, which is like CryptoKitties. It's a hilarious use of the ERC721 protocol to create digital collectibles with Kim Jong-un's face. He's also teaching a class on token economics at Miami Dade's college. Sam is a super smart dude, and we're really glad to have you on the show. My name is Jeff Peterson. And I am Alain Leong, a.k.a. Bitcoin Van Gogh. So, how are you doing today, Sam? Pretty good. Really excited to talk about crypto and, and blockchain. It's become my favorite topic of discussion pretty much everywhere. That's kind of what happens when you get into crypto. You don't go back. There's you before crypto and there's you after crypto. Is that how it is? Once you go crypto, you don't go back? Pretty much. I mean, that's kind of how it's been for the most part. We've It's been a deep dive and I haven't come out of it, but it's been kind of like a... Um, I tell my friends a lot. I actually don't know really what I'm giving people when I give them, when I give them cash. It's kind of like Monopoly money at this point. It's like a non-drug-induced psychedelic trip that I'm that I'm currently in. You hear that, folks? Crypto is the drug that is legal that gets you high. Well, I mean, it's kind of legal. I guess it's kind of like a lot of drugs actually. In some right places, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Sam, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah. So, I studied economics in college. I worked for a bit afterwards doing a couple different things. I was a journalist at the Miami Herald. Worked in an ER for a while and I did uh, neuroscience research, just got published um, the Journal of Neurotrauma at UM. And yeah, I was always coding, but now I'm a software engineer with my own company and we're developing applications, both legacy and and blockchain. So, that's kind of like the loose uh, flow. So, let's just go back. You were a writer for Miami Herald, you're a neuroscience researcher and you're a coder. Is there anything you can't do? <laughs> and you have a beautiful beard, by the way. I can't swim or run for long distances. <laughs> oh, we're not friends anymore. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, tell us a little bit what you guys do at Bushido Labs. What's going on there? Yeah. So, the core of our business when we started and um, it still really keeps the lights on are what we call legacy applications. So, any application that a client would come to us to build now is what we consider legacy because the next five to 10 years, it will be pretty much outdated. So, you know, we're building right now a telemedicine application with an EMR platform. We do e-commerce, we do game hosting. So, really any software solution we build, both enterprise and for startups. But blockchain is kind of the division that I'm leading and one that I'm really bullish on. And yeah, so we're building some really cool stuff in crypto, again, both for enterprise and for kind of startup, kind of cryptocurrency builds. And for our listeners, when you say legacy, it's it's kind of a way to, of referring to the old stuff. Yeah, right? exactly. It's, we try to be as forward thinking as possible. So, in the way we label things, we try and keep that same culture where this is old stuff in our minds already. So, we're building the new world. So, question, what right now is taking up a lot of your time or most of your time or all of your time at Bushido? Is, is there one particular project that you're like full on right now? Yeah, well, we so we're blockchain tech advisors on Tune Software, which is a music blockchain app, uh, platform by the same people that brought you Recordgram. So we finished the white paper that that was very intense, um, but we cleaned that up the last couple of weeks. Right now, the majority of our stuff and the majority of the 
really the majority of the stuff that I do all day is R&D. Um, a lot of research because as you guys know in crypto, I mean, every like there's, there's a new thing coming out every day, right? I, I saw minimal viable plasma in like September and I'm like, what the hell is plasma? And now, you know, you can actually test on it. And that really what, is- What is plasma, by the way? It's Ethereum sidechain. It's thrown in house sidechain. So, we're looking at that as well right now. But the beauty of this is and the reason why it works well for, for me is because I'm an academic at heart. So, reading these white papers are like reading research articles that I would read normally. It's just I'm able to apply them directly afterwards. So, that's what we're doing for the most part right now is research. Let me ask you though. So, a lot of this research, is it from an academic point of view? Is it from perhaps a new use case? Maybe something, you know, I, I know a lot of research is going to helping people that are moving from one country to another. Is it academic? Is it use case? Is it both? What is it? Well, at its inception, it's academic. It, it starts out as academic. It starts out as someone wanted to fix a problem in, in a purely research-oriented manner, which takes out all of the business applications entirely because you, I don't believe you can truly have unbiased research if you have some kind of industry level, I guess, build in mind at that moment. To me, it's not, a, it's, it's, not, it's not pure research. So we look at the actual academic side of what people are, are theorizing, and then we see how we can build on it thereafter. So you know, from an enterprise level, it's stuff like, well, any sort of business with multiple different regional offices or multiple different admin controls can make use of some type of blockchain. But that looks at the very low-level computer science sort of theory on how these different decentralized distributed networks are supposed to work. But it's like the low-hanging natural fitting fruit, so to speak. Right. I mean, one thing I talk about a lot is, you know, I, I relate this and more people are doing this as well to TCP IP, right? So, back in the day, there were dedicated lines between companies that people spent millions on and millions more to maintain. But when email came about, corporations were the first one to adopt it because it was a cost-saving measure. They didn't need to have these, you know, hugely expensive capital-intensive structures to talk to each other now. But then slowly, five to 10 years later, we started to use email. So that's one thing that I that I really am pretty serious on when it comes to crypto and blockchain is that companies I think will be using it will be a lot more bullish in its application first. But back to the academic side, we also look at how other countries can use crypto, how people in other countries can use crypto, more specifically privacy coins, right? Like we don't have, I don't believe we have a very robust privacy coin yet. So we're looking at some sort of builds in that realm, right? How can we help people in Venezuela? How can we help people in Iran? How can we help land title registries in Africa? There's just so many different ways you can do it. And that's why we call ourselves, you know, a lab. That's why we called ourselves Bushido Lab. It's a laboratory. We're constantly trying to figure out what we can do in the, in the space. So you're getting the fundamentals, right? Kind of like in the beginning, they, they got TCP IP, right? Or they got a lot right with it. And then later on, all these people came on and built on top of it. And, and we started getting email and we started getting video and we started getting, you know, Twitter. But back then they weren't really thinking about Twitter. They weren't thinking about YouTube. They were thinking about how to communicate effectively with this protocol. And that is sort of the research you're doing now, how to get privacy correct at the protocol level, at the language level. And then from that, perhaps maybe yourselves and others could build on top of that and come up with new applications that we haven't seen. Is that it? Yeah. I mean, we, again, I have no idea how any of this is going to pan out in the next 10 years, right? I can speculate and, we, and anyone can speculate and I have some kind of idea, but really it's, it's what works right now and allowing it to be scalable f for it to fit other things that may work in the future. And that's one of the big tenets of tech is scalability, right? Is I don't believe anything is truly scalable. I think scalability is, is something you try to achieve, but you never actually achieve it. So, what, so the research we do now is trying to make sure that the foundations are set to build something that's credible now, 
but then all that can still be scalable and more credible in the future with things that we don't even we can't even think about. So I want to transition now to uh, talking a little bit about the project that I think is just absolutely hilarious. Kim Jong Crypto. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that. So Kim Jong Crypto was kind of like the genesis of all of this in a way. You know, I, I've been in crypto since 2015-ish. I had been coding in Java and C++, but never really built anything with the with the group before. And that's kind of why I made Bushido. So we saw CryptoKitties and we saw its its success or mayhem, depending on how you want to look at it. And we thought, well, you know, let's test this out. Let's see if we can either match this or if we can build something at the same level that will attract the same kind of attention. And I truly believe that we should build things in a way that would attract people who wouldn't be in crypto normally to try and come into crypto. So in my mind, and I'm, and I'm kind of political by by nature, so it worked out well. But in my mind, I thought Kim Jong Kim Jong Un is you know viral by definition. He's he's kind of already an internet meme. Why not put him on the blockchain, right? So we work in Winwood, and Winwood um, is a very artistic, a very creative neighborhood. So we paired up with a local artist, Bryant Chava Chavariaga, who works at the lab. Fantastic dude, and he did all the art. So we came up, you know, one of my developers, my UX UI guy, Kevin, and I sat down for two days and just planned out like all the different renditions of that we can make of Kim Jong-un. Like what would make him absolutely ridiculous? So we did that. We had a launch party for it. Everyone loved it. It was kind of like an art gallery mixed with crypto, which is perfect for Winwood and perfect for what we're trying to do. And yeah, we're still waiting for the death threats. Nothing, nothing yet. But so we're holding I, out. I have one, one question. Obviously, you know, there's a very famous person that's that's visiting King John all the time. Is there a, a Dennis Rodman spin to any to, to this anywhere in there? So what we did was we made we had a general Kim face and then Bryant made a bunch of different types of hats, mouths, noses, ears, whatever, and then we made a generator in Ruby that mashes everything together. So you get like upwards of five million Kims, but the one thing we made that wasn't a Kim was a Dennis Rodman. And we had about 15 unique ones, right? There's a Harry Potter, there's a Terminator, there's a Shrek. Uh, my favorite is Mother Teresa, Kim Jong-un. And then we have Dennis Rodman, who's his own who's his own independent card because he's such a fantastic character. Yeah, he's got to be his own thing. Yeah. yeah, you can't mess with perfection. <laughs> <laughs> so, can people actually buy Kim Jong Crypto right now? Is it available? Yeah, so it's up. I'm not a gamer. My uh, partner Chris isn't a gamer. So, we got a lot of feedback in Discord about how to gamify it or at least show how the different ones are unique. So, we're going to do a relaunch. The thing is, and the problem with running your own like service-oriented software uh, business is that you have client projects to finish. So, anything you have in-house always gets pushed back. So, we've been, we've been trying to relaunch. Hopefully, we'll have it done by the, end of the, or by the beginning of the summer. So, we'll relaunch with that, make it a little bit more friendly. And yeah, then you can go in and grab your own Kim and do whatever you want with with your with your Kim Jong crypto. All right, so some technical details in there. What is what chain is this on? What are we talking about here? Yeah, so it's on Ethereum and they're ERC seven twenty one tokens. So each one is each one's unique. Each one is verifiably um, owned by you, and you know you know its provenance to where it's at now. Could you just explain to the newbies what ERC seven twenty one means exactly? And because there's people have maybe heard of Ethereum ERC twenty tokens, but ERC seven twenty one is not as common. I think. Yeah, no, it's not. And there are other ones now. I think there's 223 and there's one, I think, 827 or 821. So ERC, and this is something I explain in my, my class in Miami Data, is, uh, is just Ethereum request for comment, which is the beautiful part about this whole system in the first place, is that anyone that has a better idea or thinks that they may have a better protocol or a better way to do anything simply comments on it. And that's de facto accepted if people also agree with them. So ERC 20 was simply Ethereum request for comment number 20. And it was uh, different functions and different transfer um, or different uh, functions and events for what someone thought would be ideal for a fungible 
uh, cryptocurrency. So 721 then is simply the Ethereum request for common number 721. And that was basically making unique uh, tokens. So kind of like baseball cards, they're non-fungible. So fungibility is that you got a dollar that can be a hundred different pennies and each penny is the same unit, the same exact worth and value of, of the other. But ERC721, each one is different. So this works for digital assets, which is something I'm really big in. We're now able to verifiably you know, prove something's provenance, when it tra- changed hands, at what price, at one point, and the fact that you own this one thing and there's only one, five, 10, however many of them. And you can do that with ERC721 compliance. Can I buy it with my mycelium wallet? That's what I want to know. With your what? Mycelium wallet. I mean, if it's an Ethereum wallet, yeah, you can, you can, okay. you can go ahead and buy it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so in other words, those folks out there listening, if you got an Ethereum wallet, Odds are they can buy King Joe. Go ahead and grab some Kims. Okay, good deal. That's what we wanted to know. So this protocol is very useful for things like uh, real estate tracking as well, because you have an asset that needs to be different from the other asset class, other assets out there, and, and it's non-fungible. Yeah, exactly. Real estate. More of what I was thinking were like I think diamonds are already. There's something called um, Everledger, and they're doing diamonds. You know, purses. You got to prove that your Louis Vuitton purse is actually is actually uh, you know real. And this is a way to do that with real estate. I'm actually happy you brought that up. Real estate is one thing that we're, we've been looking at also like, like land titles, right? So what's cool about, we've been doing a lot of research and, and coding and chain code and Hyperledger and Hyperledger is more of a permission blockchain. And it's funny because you get people that either hate it or love it, just permission blockchains in general. But I think that's useful for All industry. Right. Do you hate it or you love it? I love it. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Are we still talking about blockchain? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. So in Hyperledger, you know, in specifically in what's called Fabric and in Composer, your tokens are objects, which they're not in Ethereum at the moment, right? A, a, t- a token is simply just a value in a, in a key value mapping that increments and you're just pointing to it. But in Composer, they can be an object and you can store stuff inside of it. So yeah, for real estate, it'd be incredible. You have this unique token that has its different parameters stip- dictated inside of it and it can be whatever you want. So that can apply to literally anything. You can even like store pictures of the house and like call those onto like a service where you want to look at the pictures of the house and know the value and all the information all in one little spot. And it's a token. So if we look at other places, um, I think it was uh, Abu Dhabi or something like that where the king said that like starting in 2020 or 2021, all land titles were going to be on a blockchain and so on and so forth. I think they were using uh, some sort of internal blockchain or I don't to us, it may not make any sense. But anyways, it is going to be electronic. It is going to be on a blockchain of sorts. Do you see the ability to use an object instead of, you know, an alphanumeric token, essentially providing more and perhaps as people jump onto that, choosing to go with objects as tokens versus just a reference? Yeah. I mean, I think they have their different applications, right? So if you want to have a non-fungible token, that's an object that you can put anything inside of that applies to certain things with certain use cases like real estate, like land titles. But then again, if you just have a regular cryptocurrency that doesn't need to be non-fungible, that can be fungible like money, like fiat, then no, you don't, you don't, you don't need that. It can just be, it can just be a pointer as it is now, as it stands. So it depends on what you want to use it for, really. So going back to our conversation of TCPIP, at this very fundamental level, what you're essentially doing is you're giving people a lot of options later on to do things that you may not even think of right now, simply because it's an object and they can do with it whatever they want. Exactly. It's kind of the attitude I take towards development for this in general. 
One thing, I don't know if you guys have ever talked to a Bitcoin maximalist. I mean, I don't know if you know. Okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think most people in crypto have talked to Bitcoin maximalists. <laughs> they're, they're out there. I kind of equate that to talking to a communist. It's, 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 you're, you're really not going to be able to get a whole lot out of them. And you're not going to be able to get them to even consider changing their minds or look at the other options. I take that attitude with pretty much everything in crypto is that there isn't necessarily a wrong answer for the most part, unless you're trying to buy Venezuela's Petro. Aside from that, I don't think there's a really, there's a bad application. A lot of the things that we're doing aren't going to work. You know, I mean, having a closed land title uh, specific public private blockchain for one country may not work, but I welcome it because that's an application of something we're trying to build. I mean, again, no one knows the correct way to do anything right now and no one has an answer either. So if someone tells you that this is the way to do it and there isn't another way, then they're either full of shit or they are malicious, right? So yeah, I mean, I I welcome any sort of entrance into this space and any sort of development because in my opinion, it's all valid. So you're saying even if it's something that's wrong that doesn't end up working, it's it's right in the sense that we needed to find that out. Yeah, I'm being in testing. I mean, we're not going to be able to find things unless we test them. And through that, there's a lot of trial and error. Now, you know, the flip side of that is ICOs, right? Like the flip side of that is really crappy, not well thought out ICOs. And we we've we've seen that. You know, I mean, I was at the North, the North American Bitcoin Conference. I saw people pitch fifty million dollar ICOs, and then I confronted them—not confronted them, but I talked to them afterwards—and they wouldn't be able. They just couldn't explain to me how they plan to interface between this public blockchain, between that private blockchain, and their local server. And they—they just—they couldn't map out their development. So for me, it was frightening to see that it's not only the investors that are speculating; it's not only the C levels, but to a certain extent, it's also the the development team, which is frightening, but is also encouraging to a certain extent because it's people—it's people that are testing, right? But you got to be careful in how you, I guess, collaborate with that sort of blind testing, if that makes sense. Yeah. We have an idea. We have no idea how it's going to work, but we're going to raise money and figure it out. <laughs> the raising the money part is the complicated you know, aspect of it with lots of legal implications too. Yeah. I mean, so I welcome the testing and kind of the audacity in testing, but you should be a little bit pragmatic as to how you make that happen. Don't do it with other people's money, essentially. Kind of, yeah. And, and the problem is that it's too easy to do with other people's money right now. Speaking of money, you mentioned that you are a big fan of Austrian economics. And uh, I think this is something that's like a, a very popular topic in the crypto space. Could you explain a little bit what Aust- Austrian economics are and how they compare to you know, other types of economics and for the people who aren't necessarily as fluent in this subject? Yeah, I think the most important part about this and the most applicable part about this right now is just the idea that so we had the separation of church and state, right? And at this point in time, that seems like an antiquated model that just really was strange to begin with in the first place. Like why would you have the, the church and your government being the same thing and make the same rules? I think we're going to have the same thing with state and money. I think we're seeing the separation of state and money. And that's one thing that Austrian that Austrian economics really pushes um heavily in is is not having government control the money supply. Why should government control the money supply? There are definitely reasons for that, but I don't believe that it should be that way. So there's a lot of people that are scared about not giving government that power. And very famous economists, Krugman and Stiglitz, both said that essentially Bitcoin is a devil exactly because of that. Like they didn't have a problem with it as a, as a payment system to say like PayPal or Venmo or something like that. But they essentially said Bitcoin is the devil, that it was going to destroy the universe. Stiglitz said it should be illegal. And these are the people that essentially are, uh, that mindset are the people in control. I, I think you would agree with that. What would you say 
to them, not not so much to them, uh, but also to a lot of the folks that the regular folk, why this is not the devil. Yeah. So, God, what's that quote? Society admires its living conformists and its dead troublemakers, something like that. So, whenever I hear people that are so adamantly just vitriolically against this industry, I'm really encouraged. So, I think I told you guys before, I, I took a few courses in economics at University of Miami. So, I went back to my professor to talk about some token economic stuff to, to clarify a few points that I wasn't really sure on. He wasn't there. So, I went to talk to three other professors in the econ department who were there. And I knocked on their doors and I said, hi, do you have a second? And they're professors, so they all have a second. And I'm like, uh, and then they go, about what? And I go, token economics. And they go, well, what's that? And I'm like, cryptocurrency. All of them shut their door. Not one person would talk to me. Really? And I love that though. It's so encouraging because either I'm incredibly right about something or I'm really, really wrong. What scared them? I, what, what, it's I mean. such a challenge against what they know. I mean, so the one thing about token economics and the one thing I love is that we're creating our own ecosystems. We're creating our own economies very arbitrarily. I mean, we now, the thing about cryptos, and, and I come from macroeconomics. I don't understand finance. I don't understand investments. I hardly know what an ETF is. What blows my mind about this space is that we're now arbitrarily dictating and defining our own representation of value, right? It's not just, we, we come from an industrial economy. So everything for us is, everything for us in value is utility. But right now, there's more than just that. There's not just standard capital. There's not just capital in, in, in utility. There's cultural capital. There's social capital. There's natural capital. There's things that people value that they don't have a metric for. There's things that people value that they can't actually represent in any way. So not only are we giving them a means to represent whatever they think is valuable, but we can also now set up decentralized autonomous governance for it too, where they can make the rules and they can vote on what they want. And you can enter and exit depending on your own marginal utility for it. So that's kind of the amazing part. And that is such a front against what they were taught, against what they know and against what they practice every day. And that just doesn't just apply to economics. Some of the smartest developers that I know, some of the smartest people in computer science that I know are not receptive and are just like vehemently against this space too, because they're scared. Let me back up a little bit there to one of your points. You said that we can define our own value Essentially, what are we talking about here? So Bitcoin was worth what? Zero when it started, essentially. And we get to say that now Bitcoin is worth $17,000. Is that what you're talking about? And another question that maybe we can relate it to a little bit is I've, some of the people in academia and even economics, they're against it, like you say. But I've run into other people, particularly um, real estate agents, that kind of get it. And when I talk to them, they tell me, well, here's the thing. Whenever I sell an extremely expensive house and I talk about it, some people say, oh, there's no way that house is worth that much. And what do I tell them? That house is worth whatever somebody else is willing to pay for it. So is that kind of like what we're talking about here, that it's no longer the government deciding how much money is going to be worth by the power they have over it? Well, I mean, it's definitely... I mean, the whole point is that there's no central authority dictating how much, I mean, in this case, if you want to be specific, how much money is in circulation or how much money there will be, right? It's people that set that restriction or set that parameter and then other people can accept it. So with Bitcoin, there's 21 million. You can see that. You can look at the code. You can look at the smart contract and it's there. There's only 21 million that will ever be made, which is why I love when Alan Greenspan goes on Bloomberg and says that, you know, he thinks that people that consider Bitcoin the new gold are delusional. Frankly, I think it's better. I mean, it's, it's, it's provably scarce. So what does that mean for us? Like the Bitcoin price going up or down because of that? Like 
what are we talking about here? So yeah, again, I don't know finance. I have a hard time and I'm, very, I'm open about this. I have a hard time understanding the financial markets and traditional markets. So in crypto, it's even worse. I don't really know what makes things go up and down necessarily. What I do know is that I think Bitcoin's price going to 10,000 and likely going higher this next year is kind of a fuck you to, to, to the government and to just fiat currency because it is insane. I mean, you have this magic internet money that people just made out of nowhere that other people are accepting because they think your current system is so stupid. They literally used, used math to invent new money, which is <laughs> fucking awesome. Like power to the nerds is again and again. It started with Microsoft, you know, and then it just kept going and going and going. Now we have our own money. It's crazy. And that, 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 that's only one example. I mean, anyone can make their own money. And if people accept it, you've now made something serious. So, just to clarify, like if you look at Tune, for example, the project that we're blockchain advisors on, I set up the token economics. So, what happens is in that ecosystem, if you like a song, you get compensated in, in what's called Tune credits. It's their internal utility. Okay. Talk to us a little bit about Tune again. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, we actually had them on a, on a podcast a little while ago. The episode's already out. So, look at the episode with Eric Mendelson. Anyway, I'll let you explain what yeah, you just, guys are just doing. Just a quick brief yeah, no, just for I'll, whoever's I'll you, listening now. Just give you a brief introduction. It's just so the same guys have brought you RecordGram. So RecordGram is just an application that A-list producers can put their beats on and then anyone can then buy those beats and record on top and then disseminate that how they wish. So it's democratizing access to quality, to quality beats to record music. So Tune is kind of the next step in that uh, evolution. So Tune is a music ecosystem, a music blockchain that allows multiple different applications to be part of it. Recordgram being one and the first example. So what happens is if you are using an application that's in the Tune blockchain, for example, if you like a song, you get credits. If you curate content and people start following you, you get credits. Simply by being active in the community, you get compensated in some way. So really it's it's game theory, economics, and computer science. So it's all about incentivization. Those people are in that because they value music, they value music content, they value access to music. But the beauty is that you can then liquidate outside of that market, right? I mean, this isn't a new concept. These are in-app, these are in-app credits, in-app purchases. Apple has it. It's something, it's something new. But what's new is liquidity. What's new is you can now exit and enter that market at will. So you leave that and you jump into Amazon's, you know, ecosystem when they have theirs or Netflix's, whatever you think is valuable. That's kind of what I mean by this new world of token economics where as long as you want to be there and you agree with the rules, you can go in and out whenever you want. So if you make a kick-ass playlist and instead of keeping it to yourself, you make it public and it blows up, it goes viral. Every DJ is using it around the world. You're essentially accumulating all these credits. But before these credits were perhaps used for like in-app functions, like for you to get a song for free or whatever. Now what you're saying is now you're being monetized also in the real world so you can use those credits, those tokens, and actually go buy some real gear. Yeah. The, the real world is a very loose kind of term at this point. I don't even know what that means anymore. But yeah, yeah exactly. You can go into different, you can go into different economies. I mean, we're, we're making new economies. We're making new countries. One of the beautiful aspects of this is in economics, there's something called the impossible trinity. So it's that you can't have a fixed exchange rate. You can't have a sovereign monetary policy and free capital flows all at the same time. It's simply impossible. Now, that model also does apply to these token economies that we're making, but not in the same way exactly because standard traditional economies have social and political dynamics that don't really exist in these crypto economies. And if they do, they exist in different renditions. So when I say like we're making a new world, this is it. Like it's a new discipline of economics. And I've seen people aggressively deny it, but it's happening. 
All right, so I'm I'm gonna jump on that because I got some some really cool '90s playlists that I think are gonna take <laughs> off. I mean, <laughs> some really good stuff here. So to play devil's advocate, you see, you can exit in and out of this economy. Why couldn't you do that with, say, Bitcoin or Ethereum as it is? Because I mean, these things are by definition like more more used by more economies. Isn't it more work even to use a different token and have to like use an exchange or whatever to to go in and out of that particular token? Yeah, and, and that's that's one of the complications we're going through now is is ease of access. I mean, first of all, people that use these systems and these platforms shouldn't know that they're really using crypto, and at least initially. You need to obfuscate that enough because it's it's too complex and it's too involved and it's too revolutionary to have every single person truly get it and use it at that level. In terms of using Bitcoin for these things, I mean, it's incentivization. So it's whatever, it's if you think what you're using is being represented enough, it is that if you think the cryptocurrency you're utilizing at that moment makes sense and, ha- and is specific enough to give you value for why you're in that system. So Bitcoin is very general. I mean, Bitcoin is a, is a payment currency for the most part. It's not specific to one realm, but we're seeing right now that that macro aspect is too broad for most people. I, I, I believe people genuinely want to be represented as micro as possible within these little tribes. So that's why I think compartmentalizing that as much as possible will render in more widespread application. So this is why you're not buying this whole Bitcoin maximalist talk. You think people naturally are going to tend toward these these groups, these hanging out. It's like back, we're back in high school, and you're not going to have one big group of people, you know, all together. You're going to have you, you know, you're going to have the cheerleaders over there, the nerds over there. Is that what we're talking about? What we're talking about with ICOs, with coins, different coins, and that's why they're going to be around and it's not going to be Bitcoin taking over the world. Yeah, I kind of tend to um, analyze things from like a sociological perspective, right? In that I try and look at human nature. I don't believe in altruism at all. I think people need to be incentivized to do things. And this is exactly what I'm doing. I think in that sense, yeah, people are tribal. People always kind of break themselves down into communities at any point. I remember being in college and we had intramurals and like soccer and I was on the fourth floor and we had people on the fifth floor, but people took their floors really seriously after a while. Like, we're going to fucking kick your ass <laughs> like next week. So people are tribal. People want to be represented. They, 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 they want to feel like they're part of a community and that their identity is also part of that. That dynamic is not going away. We're, we're going to see this we play out. We haven't changed since the Greeks. We haven't changed since the, I mean, we're, we're the same people. We make the same mistakes just in different ways and are arguably on bigger scales now. I tend to agree. I see it all the time. And one of the nice things too about like uh, having your own currency for your own little micro ecosystem is kind of reminds me of, of of the marketing. That's what I'm looking for. The wisdom in marketing is like you want to make your marketing as hyper specific as possible. Otherwise, people don't give a shit about what you're actually pitching to them because they don't feel like it's for them. So if you don't create something that people feel like is for them, they're not incentivized to use that particular product or service or whatever like you wouldn't go to a unisex barber to get a sweet haircut like you you want to like for me i want like the people who have like you know the the known for being like the best like beard trimmers like best like haircutters like uh the people who are like market everything and seem like they're the specialists for what i want and i guess this is the cryptocurrency version of that same thing where it's an alignment of those incentives and alignment of of the tribe with the branding and the name of the currency and all those things so, so that's a good exactly. point you just made me think of something. So when you do that and you end up with this other coin that's hyper specific to me, you know, it's it's exactly what I want. Bitcoin Van Gogh coin. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe you should just call it Van Gogh coin. Huh? Yeah, yeah. That'd be hey don't, it's don't. redundant saying Bitcoin Van Gogh coin. <laughs> yeah. So here's the thing. Like so I want to use it. So it's like I'm in the world of Warcraft and you know I got this coin or tune coin or whatever it is. 
you got to make it easy to to exchange. What, what are we talking about here? Atomic swaps? Uh, it's something we don't know yet. Like I know you said you're probably you're like an academic, but from a user perspective, this has to be easy. Otherwise, you know, if I can't come out of that world unless I really like, and some people will really want to stay in that world. You know, you might turn off some people that otherwise might be in there. So, how does that exchange work uh, in an easy way, if possible? Yeah, that's that's one of the points you kind of hit on earlier, and I don't have a good answer. There, there, there isn't exactly a, a good way to do that right now. That's one of the several problems we have in blockchain and crypto is that we need to obfuscate it. Like we need to kind of blur the lines a little bit more so people don't have that problem. That's that's kind of one thing that we focus on in just development in general is design. I mean, you can have a kick-ass application, but if no one wants to use it because they can't figure out the UX UI or the UX UI is just terrible, they're not going to use it. So that's huge. I mean, and that and that applies in this sense too. Like you need to give them a very easy means of, of access, especially now in an on-demand economy. I mean, people, you know, they want the most convenient thing. That's why we Uber Eats on, on a Sunday night instead of actually going out somewhere. We just want to be more comfortable, which we're organisms at the end of the day. And you know this because you're, you're in medical too. I mean, we're just, we're animals. We still have the same primal instincts. We want things to be as simple as possible. So development is no different. But that's the thing. Like we're still trying to figure out the best way to make that happen. I don't have a good answer. So I want to transition now to just more general. What do you think is something that people misunderstand about blockchain or cryptocurrency that you think should be cleared up? Well, first, so every panel I'm on, there's at least one person who asked me about money laundering, drug dealing, and terrorism in crypto. Now, first of all, they still have to convert it back to fiat, which isn't an easy process. So it's not like that straightforward, number one. Number two, there's nothing documented about this happening on that scale in the first place. And secondly, you can look at everything on Etherscan and on Bitcoin's uh, block explorer to see like where, like who's transacting what. I mean, these it's not a privacy coin. It's very easy to actually track by address and by and by transaction hash. I mean, it's not a complicated process. But more importantly, I mean, let's not let's not kid ourselves. Every one, five, ten, and twenty dollar bill in Miami has cocaine residue on it. So like <laughs> I'm not entirely sure if that's a fair comparison. So this isn't a means for bad actors to use it. And even if they were, that doesn't delegitimize the protocol. Just because bad people are using it doesn't mean the the system is bad. Right? Yeah, are you going to take down the entire internet because there's pedo websites exactly. every once in a while? I mean, you, you get rid of those bad actors. You don't take down the whole thing. And it's important to note that this is like, this is kind of the beginning of, you know, when the stock market came about. I mean, there aren't rules and regulations. So, it will attract certain actors and that simply is just the nature of things. It will be refined slowly like our economy is now. But in the beginning, it lawlessness attracts kind of lawless people. And that's something we've had to navigate in crypto too and it's complicated. But that's kind of the biggest thing is that this this isn't this this isn't a space for bad people to get involved. So I took away from that you want people to understand that this isn't entirely anonymous. That you can't just do whatever you want and nobody is ever going to find you ever because is magically crypto. You're saying that you know these transactions are out there. If anything, for everybody to see and it's not anonymous. So you want people to kind of understand that. I I, I kind of got that. Except for privacy coins. But you're also trying to say, so it's kind of like free speech, right? And almost like that that WhatsApp conversation. And now, you know, something that happened recently was, you know, Telegram. The Telegram guy said, you know, privacy is not for sale. So Russia, like, cut him off or whatnot. So what you're saying is this is more fundamental than that and that the authorities will can still get these guys, you know. And, and you've seen they've gotten some of some high-profile folks. But that even if 
the uh, you're almost making and correct me on this you're almost making the point that even if the authorities couldn't get to these people this is almost like free speech you know you have the right to put on the web within what you want so yeah I'm, I'm, i'm pretty i mean this is free speech i mean this is a libertarian landscape the thing with free speech and i and i and i'm pretty sure i'm never fixed in my opinions if i'm wrong i'm very open about it and i will change I will change if someone gives me a legitimate reason or argument to change and I accept it. So as it stands, I kind of believe in absolute free speech and absolute free speech is an uncomfortable thing because people will say things that you don't like, but it's simply a consequence of that kind of ethos. So same thing in this. I mean, I believe in absolute free speech with your money. Now, people will do things that you're not comfortable with with that also, but it may be worth implementing that thing on a large scale in general um, is kind of it. From the privacy coin perspective, since we since we got into that, people in Venezuela need a way to need a way to store their value. People in Venezuela right now can't buy U.S. dollars; they have to do it in the black market. Privacy coins, you know, in particular in this case, actually give them a way to a, a way to a way to escape government tyranny. I invite SEC regulation domestically because I do think it's going to legitimize this landscape. My point is is that just because there aren't rules or laws, and and the reason that is is because it's so new, doesn't delegitimize the technology. So you want the SEC to go after the scammers, but everybody oh, yeah, else. No, yeah. I mean, I mean, man, it sucks that the first SEC arrest happened in Miami. I saw those, I saw those palm trees, and I'm like, please don't be South Florida. So yeah, if if you're trying to scam people out of money, I mean, you you probably should be in jail. I'm 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 not saying go ahead and do whatever the hell you want. No, I definitely invite regulation, of course. Yeah, we just had. Uh David Silver on the podcast. His episode's going to be coming out very soon, actually. He's like the the punisher of crypto. He's been going after all these companies like uh, Bitconnect and Tezos and, and a bunch of other guys who've been, in his opinion, like not doing what they said they're going to do. So, it's interesting to see the the reckoning happen for a lot of these companies that are that are not doing what they promised originally. Yeah, my my only kind of caveat with with the regulation is the fear that they're going to impose too many restrictions that will you know restrict people like us from developing everyone is bullish in this around the world i recently spoke to someone who was pretty invested and pretty in the serious circles during the dot-com boom and oh actually it was albert santala the former ceo of care cloud he has a he has a company right now in the gables called apebase and they're basically an app building blockchain company which is fantastic but what he was telling me was that in the in the 90s, the dot-com boom was really kind of a U.S. phenomenon. It wasn't a global thing. But this is a global thing. Russia is, is, is going headfirst into this. You know, 60% of Bitcoin miners are in China for the most part, which is problematic. If we restrict ourselves too much, then we're going to fall behind. And we are the innovation, you know, hub of the world. And I don't want that to change. So that's my only concern with regulation. So the way you're looking at it is right now we're on a, on a global market of of this boom, and we've we've kind of seen it a little bit where where some countries are a little bit too restrictive, and the companies just pick up and leave. I mean, we just had uh, I think Binance move to Malta or something like that, and so what you're saying is, you know, if we get too restrictive here in the U.S., that, like there's no stopping this. This is this is not a U.S. phenomenon, and I think even even probably if you look at the volume of dollars to crypto or, or even something like Bitcoin, U.S. is really only I think like 35 percent of that volume. So it's this is way beyond the United States. And if if we get too too crazy here with the regulations for what a lot of these legitimate companies want to do, they're just gonna pick up and go somewhere else. And, and you don't want to see that. Yeah, you're not going to stop this. I mean, how can you? Everything's open source. I mean, every protocol is out there. You can pretty much, we're past the point to actually stop this. My my point is, is that they can slow it down. 
And if they slow it down, then we're going to fall behind. And I don't want that to happen. I don't want companies leaving. I mean, I, so I, I mean, I was, I was, I was born in Iran and I, and I go there back and forth because my grandma lives there. I've seen what happens with, you know, totalitarian government restrictions. I mean, people leave. The smart people leave. It's called a brain drain. I don't want that to happen here. They're all flocking here. I don't want them to leave. And in fact, some of the companies I work with are actually considering leaving just because of the, the ever tightening regulations and the fear around that because there's like a lot of uncertainty of what happens to, to companies like especially ones that have um, been raising money recently they can get punished for things that they didn't even know were rules essentially and new rules can be created that can backwards uh, go back and, and slap people which is uh, kind of unfortunate because in every other place of the law you should have ex post facto but not here in the in the investment space so it's kind of interesting so we are uh, closing out on time right now, but is there anything that you want to discuss or, or mention that you think the listeners need to hear about? Yeah, just put the effort in, I think is kind of my <laughs> final message. Don't be, don't be scared. It's a, it's a very scary landscape, but have an open mind. You know, one of the things we talk about at, at Bushido and, and, and my, you know, people, people buy like, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And that's something I'm really serious about. I'm, I, I, I pretty much head like the branding and the company. And my main message and everything we do is I believe like true creativity happens at the intersection of science, technology, and the actual arts, right? So I think if you combine the precision and the validation of science, the innovation of technology, and the audacity of the true arts, then that's when you get real creativity. Like Francis Crick, the guy that discovered DNA, was dropping acid when he discovered it. Not to say that that's a, a means to discover the structure of anything, you know, high level. But the point is, he had an incredible understanding of analytical chemistry before that. But he dropped his his blinders, right? He he, he kind of dropped the barriers for a second to truly see how he can apply this thing that he understands. So. We're not dropping acid in my company, but my point is that like we we add the creativity. At least publicly, they're not dropping acid. <laughs> that's, that's what they're, that's what they're saying. But, but if, if you guys are cool, then uh, <laughs> <laughs> they just come to the back room. Stop by Bushido Lab this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Go into the champagne room. <laughs> no, we're at the lab, in Miami. Anyone with cool ideas is welcome to stop by. But no, just be open about these things. It may challenge everything you know. I used to be. Do you guys know what a luddite is? Heard the word. What a, so a Luddite during the Industrial Revolution in England were people that were that lost their jobs to different factories, right? So all all the tech that came out then to replace people, they started to burn factories, burn these machines because they hated the tech innovation because they were lost. Neo Luddites are the modern kind of rendition of these people. And for a moment, I was I was kind of a neo luddite. I was like, we're going way too fast. Like there's there's simply we we can't keep up. Like there's a very kind of like logarithmic expansion in how we're developing and how we're and how we're keeping up with it. It's just unsustainable. But then I looked at human nature and I realized that's just simply what we do. I mean, I was standing outside my balcony with my partner or with his balcony, my partner, Chris, looking at a building that was being constructed and a bunch of birds flying around. I go to him. I'm like, hey, do you think the birds really think about what they're doing to, you know, like consciously understand what they're doing? He's like, no, I don't think so. And I'm like, then why the fuck are we doing this? Why do we build? What's the point of it? I mean, the, we, we, our biological needs are met. Our primal needs are met. We're eating we're sleeping, arguably having sex, like all those things are being met for the most part, but why we do we go it, out yeah. of our way? <laughs> so, so it's that. Uh, my, my point is, is that because we're humans, because we innovate, keep that same mentality and, and look at this new space that we're all building. No one knows what the hell's going on. We're all testing, but it's beautiful. Is this why you're referred to as a battle-tested uh, samurai? I think that's, <laughs> I read that in, uh, in, in your website. Is, is that what this is about? Kind of, in a way. You know, I mean, Bushido is the way of the warrior and, and we kind of, you know, they have the, the principles of Bushido. So, we kind of try to apply that as best as possible. So, so yeah, 
a little bit. I want to thank Sam so much for coming on the podcast. I personally learned a lot talking to you today. Where can people find you and learn more about your projects? Yeah, it's a good question. We're, so, I don't have an Instagram even though I'm in tech. I'm not personally, I'm not very good at these things. Academic, so social marketing. But well, it's BushidoLive.com. Well, my company has an Instagram. It's not active because I'm in charge of it. We have Kim J Crypto on Instagram, on Twitter. You can check out. But my email is Sam at BushidoLive.com. So, welcome to contact me. And again, we're at the Lab Miami. So, always stop by. So, we'll, we'll put all those links on the podcast notes so you can get harassed uh, personally in your email. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on and we look forward to seeing Kim J Crypto in the future and the other cool stuff you guys have coming out. Thank you for having me. Good deal. Thank you for listening to a Bit Cryptic podcast. A Bit Cryptic podcast is hosted by Alain Leon, Dang Du, and myself, Jeff Peterson. Show notes are by our editor-in-chief, Dang Du. Website is by Sammy Toucan and his team at Pack Surge Media. Remember, Nothing we say in this show is meant to be financial advice. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and family. Thank you for listening. And remember, keep it cryptic.